So I make mistakes every now and again. I know, weird, right? And uh, one of those mistakes was at the very end of my Iron Man 1 video because I made the comment that, hey, you know what? I'm not sure if I want to do these Iron Man to Iron Man 2 or if I want to do it in release order. So for those of you not quite getting it, uh, Iron Man 2 was in fact the next one to come out. I mean, Hulk technically came out later, but you get my point. It was Iron Man, and then it was Iron Man 2, and next will be Thor, and then Cap, and then Avengers. I didn't actually realize that in hindsight. I could tell you why, too. I'm going to explain this more in the Thor video, because it's actually going to be more relevant there. But all you need to know right now is that I'm an idiot, and... I kind of forgot where Thor came out because I didn't see Thor in the theaters. Moving on. <clears throat> so, I also want to mention something. And it's funny because many, many times when it comes to these rumination analyses that I do, I tend to have my opinion changed by virtue of looking into the work more. Sometimes for the better. Sometimes I really appreciate how amazing a fictional work is. And sometimes that opinion goes down. And this movie is an example of neither. Which makes this an extremely rare case where I walked in expecting something and that's what I actually got out of it. See, I usually think of Iron Man 2 as my least favorite of the MCU, not counting Incredible Hulk. And I don't think it's bad. There's some significant uh, logical issues. Some of the script has problems, and I feel like they completely dropped the ball in, with regards to the villains. But, I can't call the film bad, but least favorite? Oh, that's easy. So going back through with rumination mode on, you know, with analysis mode on, I was like, hey, this film is not bad. <laughs> Go figure. I don't have a lot to say behind the scenes here. I actually already talked about the Howard, the Terrence Howard stuff back in Iron Man 1, so I have nothing new to add to it. It's just funny because on the commentary track for this very film, they talk about that, and they basically get across the same point that I did, except much more succinctly. Namely, everyone says something different, and who knows what the truth is. <laughs> so, whatever. Um, they did have to really start pushing things in a new direction. They started pushing for Iron Man 2 pretty much as soon as Iron Man was a success, which it was within its first weekend. So, you know... And they started trying to reach out and grab uh, different actors, newer actors, that kind of a thing. They really started putting a lot more money into the props budget and into the special effects budget. Going straight from Iron Man 1 to Iron Man 2, like I just did, was a heck of a visual distinction. Like, there's an obvious attempt to make things look more futuristic in Iron Man 2, whereas in Iron Man 1, while there were the occasional futuristic things, most of it was still fairly low-key, and the kind of thing you could just believe or see or whatever. Now, there were two other things that Marvel had to do, three actually, but it's all related, that Marvel had to do with regards to Iron Man 2. This was when they said, okay... I think there might be some financial feasibility in doing this whole Avengers project. Now, I don't know actually what they called it at the time, but even at this point in time, Kevin Feige and several of the other people in charge at Marvel, uh, both Marvel and Marvel Studios, were thinking, yeah, let's turn this into a franchise. Let's do this whole movie continuity thing. Now, as I mentioned before, they've been wanting to do this for the better part of a decade at this point. But now they had the financial backing and the success of one, you know, their big successful movie, Iron Man 1, and Incredible Hulk sold well too, so that helped, uh, to really start pushing for this. So then they started sitting down with people. Now, Samuel L. Jackson was brought in to be Fury basically as a lark, like just kind of a, it'd be nice if we do that. Then they had to bring him in for Nick Fury long term. There were issues with that, which I'm not going to cover, but it boiled down to the simple problem that they were needing, Marvel was going to have to start dropping money up front for the kind of talent it wanted long term. This was unusual. Uh, it, it's still technically unusual, just not as unusual as it used to be. The idea of an actor signing for X number of films, for, for signing a contract that says, yes, I will be this character for an entire franchise, was not super common. And, again, still isn't quite that common. There's still, you know, most studios still don't lean in this particular direction. So that was the big thrust of the problem here. They had to sign Samuel L. Jackson and Scarlett Johansson, actually, for many movies. It's like, okay, 
We don't 100% know where we're going with this yet, but we're doing more, and we want the same actors. Ironically, given the uh, the John Cheadle, Terrence Howard situation earlier. But anyways, <clears throat> so with that I ironed out, no pun intended, we now have you know our regular Nick Fury, our regular Black Widow, our regular you know, everyone involved, basically. Let's move on to the film itself, because I don't have much else to say about the behind the scenes. <sighs> I have a question for you, and I want to hit this right up front because several people give different accounts in-universe, in lore, as to why exactly Howard Stark decided to dump... Uh, is it Anton Vanko? Vanko's father. I'm going to refer to him as Vanko throughout the whole thing, even though I know Whiplash, blah, blah, blah. But Vanko's father, how much of that was Vanko's father's fault, how much of that was Howard Stark's fault? Because there's differing accounts, and we don't... The movie goes out of its way to never give the definitive answer, which I actually find kind of interesting. So it's kind of up to us to decide what do we think actually happened. Personally, I think it's a combination of both general factors. I think that Howard Stark was a sufficiently ruthless person to want to have total control over this, but at the same time was legitimately concerned about the possibility of Vanko's father, be, I think it's Anton, being more fiscally minded and being more mercenary in the way he wants to deal with something that Howard Stark was trying to work on for you know the betterment of tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. So in other words, both of them were kind of bad guys, but both of them also weren't you know that bad. They just kind of were going in different directions, different philosophies, if you will. So then we get to the expo. Ah, the expo. Boom, big, flashy. We've got uh, girls, we've got explosions, we've got flashing lights and a big crowd. Very Tony Stark. Which is funny because both aspects of the expo, to me, are very Tony Stark. First of all, big, flashy, ego-pushing. But second of all, and this actually kind of irritates me a little bit, it's very him to want to push the idea of, of an expo. To have a centerpiece for technological development and a showcasing of innovation that might be used to try and make things better. This is his way of dumping his money on a project to help the future, while at the same time making it big and showing flashy in ways he doesn't have to, so that you know, ego is satisfied. Very, very Tony Stark. thing that irritates me, though, is that pretty much everyone else in the film says that the, the expo is a terrible idea because it's just to feed his ego. I really don't agree on that. And that brings me to my very first big complaint about this film. It feels like the character development of the first film is something everyone except for Stark just ignores. Nobody acknowledges anything that happened or moved or how the character is pushed forward or any of that. Instead, everyone acts like Tony is this big, stupid idiot who is just a, a spoiled playboy brat that they have to deal with, rather than the guy who went through hell, barely came out of it, and is clearly suffering through some massive mental and emotional issues, and legitimately has a medical condition, which Rhodey finds out about, remember. But no, 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 he's just a kid, and nobody treats him seriously, takes him seriously, or, and this is the important part, pays attention. It actually frustrated me how many scenes he has with someone where he tries to explain something and they basically cut him off. He had multiple of those with Pepper, for example. Now, yes, he was a little bit rambly because him explaining himself is not something he's easy to do when it comes to something, you know, that real, that serious or that emotional. But they don't even try. And at no point do they acknowledge that he's trying. And I point this out because, credit to Robert Downey Jr., when he's... Giving someone a runaround, he acts in a certain way. You know, when he's being blasé or he's putting up a, a smokescreen, basically, he presents himself in a certain way. When he's stuttering or stumbling around in his words trying to say something real, he acts differently. A great comparison to use a side-by-side -side here. Towards the beginning of the film, he makes Pepper Potts CEO, which makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. So... That scene, he's just giving her the runaround. He's very smooth, very casual. Da, 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 da. Oh, and by the way, you're CEO. And he, of course, has thought this through. He had the champagne ready to go and everything. By contrast, when he's in her office towards the end of the film, trying to apologize or explain what's going on, that's him trying to be real. You see the difference? And it irritates me that nobody took him seriously. Come on. In fact, I think the only person in this entire film who took him seriously was frickin' Nick Fury. But I'll get to him later. So we've got the expo. 
Um, that happens. Uh, they do a nice little bit coming out of the expo. As usual, credit to John Favreau. He is actually a very good director. I like his stuff. They do this first-person section, you know, from the perspective of Tony Stark as he's rushing through the crowd. And it gets across a lot of information very cleanly and very neatly. You know, the, what, it li what is it actually like to be Tony Stark when he's not up on stage, trying to deal with the people, trying to push his way through the crowds. Um, multiple people saying, hey, remember me, or oh, call me, or oh, hey, it's, it's me. And he has no idea who any of these people are, and he's just trying to push through a literal throng of people. It's one of the weird things about being sufficiently popular. As much as my bank account would like to disagree with me, I do have to admit some days I'm kind of grateful that I am not more popular because I can name most of my viewers, both in the regular YouTube commenters and the people who join my stream, pretty much on site. I, you know, I remember you, and we talked about this, and we talked about this. You know, I'm not perfect about my memory, but I could at least recognize you and be like, yeah. Imagine if I had mm, ten times the viewership I do right now. At a certain point, it's not about not caring. It's about not being able to keep up, you know? Anyways, so then, of course, they send a woman to serve him the subpoena to appear before the Senate committee. <laughs> and then we have Senator Stern. I actually wrote down his name, which is funny, because every other time I wrote his name down in, this, uh, in my notes here, I wrote his name down as Senator Evil. <laughs> no offense to the actor. He actually does a good job with his role. But he really does play Senator Evil. He is what I he is like the ur example of the character archetype I usually refer to as the obstinate bureaucrat. Um, sometimes it's in the military, sometimes it's uh, in a corporation, sometimes it's in a government. But whatever they are, they are there to be a snarred, snark, snide, snarky asshole. Someone who is basically just there to make the audience hate them and to get in the way. And that's really their purpose, literarily speaking. Given what we learn in later films, by the way, really interesting to, to just think on that and look at them here. Anyways, <clears throat> so then we cut to Hammer. Uh, first of all, I want to say uh, Justin Hammer, played by Sam Rockwell. First of all, huge credit to Sam Rockwell. I'm not a huge fan of his. But pretty much every movie I've seen him in, I've liked him in. He is a very talented actor, and he has got a great natural charisma to him, which is very important in this film, because it would be really, really easy for Hammer to be really, really annoying. And I don't mean, like, the, the, lo the loser dork thing that he's got going on. I mean, like, to the point where the audience wants him off the screen. Instead, he managed to add a natural charisma and, and presentation to his lines that make him at least enjoyable to watch, even though you want to slug him. At least that's my take. If any of you have different opinions, as always, I encourage you to share them. I also like Hammer because he is one of the most ur examples of a typical, classical Type 3 villain that I've seen in a long time. He is right up there with uh, the guy's name I can't think of, uh, Cutler Beckett, which is the one who made me rearrange the types of the villains into the order that they are now. Um, good stuff, good stuff. What's interesting about him is he also... Uh, okay, so I'm, I'm just going to get this out of the way now. One of the biggest comments I hear about Iron Man 2 is how much it copies Iron Man 1. Now, that may sound ludicrous... But having gone through with analysis mode, I think I have to agree with that general complaint. Too many of the characters basically are going through the same character beats as they did in Iron Man 1. Obviously, there's some variances, and it's not like this movie is, again, in my opinion, bad. But it is um, very notably derivative of Iron Man 1, to, to a greater extent than most later MCU movies will be when they start using the Iron Man 1 formula, you know, the Iron Man formula that was established by the first film by accident. Uh, Hammer's a good example of this. If you look at Hammer, and if you look at Vanko, side by side, you see Obadiah Stane. Like, if you just combine the two. I'm dead serious. Um, no offense to either actor. Sam Rockwell and Mickey Rourke are both good actors and both good in a great performance in this film. But you can see the competency, the skill, the deadliness and the seriousness of Stain in Venko, and you could see the plays the game, uh, knows how to move through corporate America, knows how to move through the political circles, very wealthy, likes fancy things, and of course, driven by envy, that Hammer is to Stain. Um, 
And and another thing actually that occurs to me here, both of these characters are very good at rolling with the punches. Now I would say Hammer is more that. Every time uh, you know a dodgeball, <laughs> that's a weird parallel. Anytime a ball is thrown at him, he just kind of just kind of neatly slides to the side. Sometimes it grazes him. I'm speaking metaphorically, of course. He takes basically every verbal punch that is tossed at him, and it's not till the end of the film that he finally loses his cool, which again may sound familiar. So. It was hard not to keep thinking about that as I went through this film, because they just keep hating the same general points. It's also worth noting, by the way, that Obadiah Stane was someone who was rich and powerful and had access to a wealth of resources to have a comfortable life for the rest of his life, who threw it all away because he was envious, because he was jealous of Tony Stark. Justin Hammer... (laughs) Yeah, you get the point. Both Hammer and Vanko actually share the same general character motivation. They have either the knowledge or the skill or the capacity or the information or the pre-existing wealth to already be happy and have a good life, but both of them hate Stark. Although I will admit it is different shadings of it, and they do manage to differentiate them a little bit, but both of them are being driven by the same general envy, which kind of makes the point. Anywho... So, uh, getting back to the the Senate hearing really quick, now that we've talked about Hammer. I have a a lorium similar to the Type 3 villain thing I just referenced, which I call Bullet Point Syndrome. Now, Bullet Point Syndrome is a specific subset of of Bullet Pointing, which is another lorium of mine, which I need to make a put on the page, because I never have, because it hasn't been necessary, but it keeps coming up lately, so I need to finally add it. Bullet Pointing is exactly what it sounds like. Look at... Star Wars A New Hope, okay? I'm using this example very specifically. It was a smash success critically and financially. Now, people will look at that and say, why did it succeed? Now, I've kind of given my take on it. Other people have given their takes on it. But most people who really analyze the situation, it boils down to a big, long essay of reasons. Because a lot went into it, and a lot was happening, and it was the timing, and it was the movie industry was at at the time, and the actors who worked into it, and the effects work that was done to it, and the passion, and the effort, and blah, 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 blah. It's lots of stuff, right? You can't bullet point... Not without losing the essence or the purpose of the statement. You can't bullet point why Star Wars was successful. In fact, this is going to sound weird, so forgive me for ranting for a second, but the whole reason my show is me here talking until I run out of words rather than just summarizing my beat points is because I philosophically don't agree with bullet pointing. I could sit here and tell you, Iron Man 2 was a good movie, and I could do-do-do-do-do, and then this happens, and then this is cool, and this is cool, bam, and then chop it down to 5 minutes or 8 minutes or 15 minutes, whichever standard you want to go to, and I could do that, but it would be bullet-pointing, and I don't want to do that. So thank you, everyone who actually watches my long, rambling videos, because I can actually go in-depth and try to discuss more of the nuance, the shadings, and the details with you guys. Thank you. If you (laughs) bullet-point... something, you lo- not only you lose the essence, which I think happens universally, but I also think you can lose the context. Now, why am I bringing this up now? Senator Evil, I already forgot his name, Stern, <laughs> Senator Evil says, yes, could you read uh, paragraph 2, page 57 of your report? Now, Rody, first of all, Don Cheadle does a really good job of Rody. I have really no complaints about his performance. He's excellent in this. Um, he also... Let me let me actually talk about Don Cheadle really quick. Just forgive me. Because I feel Rhodey was a lot better overall of a character in this film than he was in the first film. Now, I don't know if that's because of the way it was written, or because of the directing, or because of the actor, or some combination, because, you know, I just talked about this. But overall, he comes across more nuanced. The kind of person I could actually feel or believe is a legitimate friend who manages to strike a balance point between being someone who really wants to progress militarily, not just in terms of his career, because he legitimately, philosophically agrees with the United States military. You know, that is his, for lack of a better term, platform. You with me? But at the same time, he acknowledges, and as part of this film, he will go to realize uh, even more how that is a flawed system and a system that cannot accommodate for all circumstances. And it's one of the reasons why he ends up being a good counterpart to Stark. 
So I feel he it, 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 he establishes himself in this very first Senate hearing. I can't believe we're still in the Senate hearing. It's the most interesting scene in the movie. What do you want from me? He establishes himself in, right at the beginning in the Senate hearing. He's like, bam, yes, I, I'm here to to testify on this one. And notice when Stark comes over, he's like, ha ha, shake hand. I didn't think you were going to be here. Rhodey doesn't just say, yeah, well, this is how the things are going to be. No, instead he says in a tone that is obviously disgruntled, yeah, well, I'm here now, so now we just got to roll with it. In that very efficient transference of information, just bam, bam, now we understand this is not his choice, but he is a part of the military. He has to follow orders. He was called in, just like Stark was in. He was probably subpoenaed for this one, or just flat out ordered, to call in and testify in favor of the side that he himself does not agree to. Now, he's going to do that, but he's also going to do that within the bounds of his own moral and ethical boundaries, hence those two sides of his character. Good stuff, good stuff. Bringing me all the way back to my point... I guess I do talk a little bit. I'm sorry, guys. One paragraph on page 57. What's funny is they don't even actually say how long the thing is. So we know it is at least 57 pages long. Now, that's a hell of an essay. Now, some of that's probably specifications and qualifications of how the dog's barking because the UPS truck is out there. There's nothing I can do about that. Um... You know, there's, there's, some of that is probably nitpicks or details or qualifications or things that don't necessarily need to be within this report in order to understand the full reality of what's going on. However, we can probably say there's more than one paragraph worth of information in that. And so the senator flat out basically orders this colonel to read one paragraph so that that bullet point now supports the senator's cause. And even the dog doesn't like that. And what's funny about this is anyone with even half a brain could see how obviously, blatantly biased and slandering this is. And yet the really funny thing is, I've noticed, and I don't want to get political, but I've noticed in real life that people do this all the time, and everyone just kind of goes with it. You ever notice that? It actually kind of bothers me when someone's like, hey, I think such and 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 such. And also, I hate lemonade and then such and 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 such. And then people will quote, I hate lemonade. And people react to that. Oh my God, he hates lemonade. That's horrible. How can we trust anything that person says? Context, nuance, detail. It's necessary. And for anybody paying attention to this film, and I know most of you were because this is very well presented, uh, this very clearly ousts Senator Evil as Senator Evil, which is why I call him that. I know I tend to joke around, but with all joking, Senator Evil is an evil person. I'm not even talking about the stuff that happens later. This is not right, what he tries to do here. This is basically trying to a version of eminent domain, and he doesn't argue any of the points that would be valid, because that's the thing. This is actually a, rel a valid point. A citizen of our country now has what is amount to superpowers. That's an issue. It's a huge issue. During my, seri my, my book series, The Primes, which someday I hope to actually be able to push out and publish, one of the major you know, undercurrent threads throughout the whole series was the idea of, well, what, what is the countries? What are the politicians? What do the governments now do now that they have people with superpowers running around? That has to be dealt with. And I find it interesting, thinking of it from that perspective, that what we see here is two very interesting perspectives on it, neither of which is properly argued because the movie doesn't really spend the time on it. The first is the senators. This should be part, this should be part of the, the United States government. This should be under the purview of, and the control of the United States government. Now, he does that completely wrong and destroys his own point by how badly he makes it, but you get my point. Now, Rhodey... He has a much more interesting idea. Rather than, you are mine, or you must turn over what makes you you to me, he says, let's work together. And it's a great line, and it's, it's actually kind of slid under the rug as he's being talked over by Senator Evil. But he, he's like, you know, <clears throat> well, I think it would be more beneficial to have a more cooperative relationship with Tony Stark and Iron Man in the future, and to fold him naturally into the pre-existing chain of command. Now... That's an interesting idea. It's not necessarily the best or the worst. It's just another perspective on it. And then, of course, Stark, in his defense, says the most flimsy defense that is possible. He basically just says, yeah, nobody else is anywhere near me, so I'm the nuclear deterrent. Now, I hate to point this out. I can't believe we're still talking about the, the Senate meeting. 
Anyone who has a brain, or who has studied history at all, could tell you why the nuclear deterrent doesn't work. The many, many things wrong with the concept of the nuclear deterrent. And this is something that's been analyzed and, and discussed for years and years. I have actually, this is not a joke, I won't spoil anything, but in a recent uh, article I managed to catch, there was a, uh, several people who were uh, political analysts, real-life uh, diplomats who had dissected and discussed the Wakandan policy in Black Panther and how that could relate and be conceived of in a real-life sense. And it relates to this very idea because one of the ideas posited is the moment you have a bigger stick and other people know about it, both points are, are critical there, what you have engendered is a situation that is the opposite of peaceful. Now, I'm not going to bullet point their thing because it was a bit long essay. If you ever look up to it. It's, it's, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. But a nuclear deterrent isn't going to work. And of course, his argument only works so long as he stays ahead. Which brings me to my next point. One of the things that he says is, he talks about legacy. Legacy is probably the single biggest theme of this film. We see the legacy of What's-His-Face down to Vanko. We see the legacy of Stark, both to Pepper Potts and to uh, Rhodey. We see the legacy of Howard Stark and how that affects Vanko and Tony Stark. You know, it's, it's a theme that's going throughout the whole work. But I bring this up because... It's obvious, even by the beginning of the film, that Tony Stark has already started to think about what I'm going to leave behind. He doesn't plan, I mean, look at the, the, con, the, the, the construction of the timeline of the film. He has no plans at this point to be alive by the time that expo ends. And he, of course, has been thinking a great deal about pushing Pepper Potts into the CEO position. And he obviously had everything, every intention to let Rhodey become the war machine. And to me, this goes back to that core theme back from Iron Man 1, the theme of family. He has identified who he can truly trust. Now, whether that trust circle changes, changes or alters in this film is debatable. I would say he's at least eyeballing Fury as possibly being entered into that trust circle. Because Fury, well, I'll talk more about Fury later. But there's no denying whatsoever that Rhodey and Potts are both in that trust circle. They are his family. And he arranges all the dominoes to make sure that they are the ones who end up taking on his legacy and being able to safeguard this going forward. Now, what's funny about that is, th you know, thematically that works, and that's great and all. Uh, there's a couple problems with that. First of all, he's a complete dick about how he goes about it with both of them. I mean, the party scene was just out of control and legitimately terrifying and dangerous. I can't believe he even went with that. But the second interesting point here is that the movie seems to try and prove that idea wrong. That it is Stark who is the only one who's really good at the suit, as shown in the final battle, and that Potts can't handle being CEO, so she gives it back. I'm not sure I like that. A little bit too status quo-y and also kind of goes contradictory to the message of the film, especially since Stark really was kind of fumbling about the entire film. Indeed, that's part of the point, isn't it? We all know that this was all inspired by Demon in a Bottle or whatever it's actually called. Good, good arc, by the way. Um... This is Stark, effectively at his worst. He is dying, and he can't deal with any of this. And he doesn't. It is until the very end of the film that we see some of that real competence on display, when he really starts actually trying again. And at the very end, I mean, like, pretty much the moment when he discovers the new molecule. I was actually listening for them to name it. I think I missed it. And I bring that up because in some of my research for this, they insisted that the new element that he invented was vibranium. Synthesized vibranium. I'm not sure what to think about that. If anybody knows any comic or anything that, that really goes into this in more depth, please feel free to share it because I couldn't find anything more than just an offhand reference to the fact that what he starts using instead of palladium is vibranium. Anywho... <clears throat> So, gosh, look, oh, now I have to give probably one of my bigger complaints about this film. Um, I say the second biggest complaint. There's a scene between him and Jarvis, which it's about three or four minutes long, and it's completely unnecessary, and it's frankly boring. It's the scene where they just exposit at each other. 
Let me lay this out for you. Right at the beginning at the expo, he does a little blood scanner, and we see very clearly and visually, you know, ratio of poison blood, or whatever it actually says, you know, poison in blood, 19%, or whatever the percentage, right? We see that, very obvious. And we know, we're not stupid, we know immediately, oh, oh, something's wrong. And then there are several scenes later in the movie where he keeps doing that test and, and you kind of see his skin. He starts to get a little bit more pale. And, of course, the things in his neck start showing up and the things in his chest start showing up. And he just looks terrible. And we see that what's happening to the palladium cores and how they're frying, just trying to keep him going. There's a lot of stuff that shows how he's dying and what he's dying. We don't need you to pause the movie for three minutes and have two people exposit at each other in order to get that across. In fact, there's even a line that Jarvis says, which was basically, I forget exactly how he phrased it, but what he basically said was, I'm afraid that the suit that has saved your life is now killing you. And I just found myself face-palming when I heard that. It's like, come on. That's literally reading the script to us at that point. We're not stupid. You don't have to do that for us. Anyways, moving on, moving on. So, now we get to see just how much... It's funny how much this movie matters for the MCU, if you think about it. There's several things it does. It establishes that electronic tone, that, that style of graphics and visual effects that I mentioned earlier uh, to push everything into the technology. This is when Agent Romanov actually enters the array. This is when S.H.I.E.L.D. really starts to take a forefront. This is when Nick Fury really gets to start to actually do something. You know, blah, 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 blah. But we can see that S.H.I.E.L.D. is now taking him much more seriously. Given the fact that he has met Nick Fury and is aware of the Avengers Initiative and all that, you'd think that they could just walk up and say, Hey, uh, this is your new secretary. She works with us. Blah, blah, blah. They don't do that. They have someone who is in the legal department who is, should basically slide her in into the legal department and arrange for her to be the one to personally interact with Stark and with Pepper and then to do everything in her power to impress him so that she gets hired on as a full-time assistant so that she can then analyze and, and you know do all the, the psychoanalysis stuff she needs to do as part of her assignment. That right there, that's S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> And I do kind of like that and the way they kind of just slide that under the rug there. But I also notice one interesting thing. And forgive me for talking about Agent Romanoff for a moment, but first of all, Stark twice comments on the fact that he can't quite figure her out. Uh, early on, he has a line, where is it? Uh, let's say, he says, you're an old soul, is the exact line he says to her. Now, he's probably saying it jokingly, but given what we learn about her, that is astonishingly on point. And the second line, this is much later, says, you're really hard to get a read on. And I find that line very interesting, too. That was just, that was during his birthday party. Because Stark is very perceptive. It is one of his character traits. It's part of how he can deal with so many things simultaneously and how he can fly that suit so effectively. Thing is, she is really, really good at manipulating. In fact, I'd say that's pretty much her primary, predominant strength, as Avengers will certainly show. And... I bring this up because she does something that I do in real life. And this is not bragging. Um, there's no way to say this without sounding weird. So I'm just going to admit something personal about myself. I tend to deliberately communicate in ways that don't involve my words. Generally, when I'm out and about. Um, I have this facial expression I've kind of perfected over the years, which I call the half smile. It's not really smiling, but it's basically a pleasant expression. like mm, So that people find you more approachable and therefore are more likely to talk to you and approach you. I do things with my body language. I do things with my dog. It's actually not my dog. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> what are you barking at? I do things um, with gestures and, and body posture and whether it's closed or whether it's open and all sorts of stuff all the time. And the point is, for me, it's just kind of practice. You know, it's, it's something that I got into the habit of many, many years ago for reasons I'm not going to bore you with. And it's also, there's just a little bit of curiosity there to see if anyone's paying attention. Now, most people aren't because most people don't pay attention in real life. That's not a criticism, it's just true. Most people don't actually bother to pick up on the little signals in everyday interactions. But this brings us to Romanov, because she does that. In every one of her interactions before she reveals herself to Stark, she is communicating without her words. And she does it in many different ways that are pretty much designed to get his attention and to make him think in a certain direction of her. And I like that because that shows just how skilled of a manipulator she is. 
Because unlike me, who's trying to communicate, you know, to, to, to be honest about it, this is what I actually feel or think, she is communicating to present a facade that only someone who's paying attention will notice. And thus, he, she is literally lying to him twice, if you follow. Once with the, the script, if you will, the speech that she gives or the, the dialogue that she says, and then once with how she presents that dialogue and how she talks to him so that he has a completely wrong image of who and what she is. It's brilliant stuff, and credit to Scarlett Johansson for, for portraying that. Now, and then there's Elon Musk. <laughs> He's actually in this film. I didn't even know that. I, I didn't know that until I was like, wait a minute, that's, that's freaking Elon Musk. Which is funny because he's, he's uh, actually uh, allowed them to use some of his actual facilities for filming in this film. And, of course, Elon Musk is stated as being a big uh, inspiration for Tony Stark, the MCU version. So there you go. So then we get to the F1 section. I'm just skipping ahead here a little bit. F1 section, I just want to say something really quick because this is a great time to bring it up. Uh, I can think of two movies and no one's ever going to request Die Hard 4, so here we are. One of the things I've noticed is that the more we, the viewers or the players of a movie or a game or a show, uh, know about a subject, the harder it is for us to swallow when the writers of that show or movie or game don't know that subject. You know what I mean? Most people watching this right now are probably at least somewhat tech-savvy and therefore probably get a little bit more irked when people are talking about hacking the mainframe and, and we, oh, God, they're pushing through all our IP simultaneously, you know, all that kind of stuff. It probably irks them to you. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've noticed in my, in my life and my observations that most people, the more they know about something, the more that bothers them when, you know, when fiction portrays it wrong. Which brings me to Formula One. Now, I'm obviously not a Formula One driver, but, driver, but I've been following Formula One for uh, a while at this point. I am actually a big fan of F1. Uh, it's something I enjoy. And um, and I'm just saying Kimi Raikkonen's amazing. And the way that they present Formula One in this is, is just something that irks me. Because that's not how it freaking works. And that's why I just wanted to build up to that point and, and why I, I say that. Because obviously a lot of the things don't work that way. But, you know, he just gets in and is like, yeah, no, I'm just going to take over the driver. Uh, okay. And, all right, I'm going to do There are trained professional drivers who have trouble getting a Formula One car properly started because you can't just drive it like a normal car. And then, of course, there's the actual race scene, you know. Um, why are they still driving? You ever wonder that? Like, they keep driving. They have headsets. Pull over, pull over, you know. Red flag, red flag. I mean, God's sakes, right? Anyways, so then we see the interactions. So there's some good stuff I'm just going to jump over because I have nothing to say about it. You know, the prison escape scene was actually kind of horrible in how brutally effective it is. This is the kind of thing Hammer's okay with. Remember, he's the one who set up this whole thing. So he basically had another guard put in there, excuse me, another prisoner put in there to be murdered. To be murdered in order that so that Vanko can get out and then serve him. <laughs> and it is interesting how the the combo of them basically do equal up to Obadiah Stane. And I don't mean this as an insult. I mean we have the competency and the the precision and the and the strength of will of Vanko. Vanko, excuse me. And then we have the resources and connections and assets of Hammer. It's also interesting. I, I know this is kind of obvious, but I feel like pointing it out anyways. When Venko talks to Stark in the prison, he's very communicative. He is quite fluent in English, and he has no problem talking about what's going on and his plan. And he's basically a little chatterbox. Then he's put in front of Hammer, and he says like ten words during the entire discussion. And he portrays himself as someone... He's, he actually goes out of his way to speak Russian, with a Slovakian accent, I believe. And Slovakian, excuse me. God, I'm messing up my A's today. And every day. He goes out of his way to speak Russian, specifically to dissuade him from thinking that he's smart and competent. And then he says, like, clipped sentences. Rather than a full, complete sentence, he would say something, you know, rather than saying, I would like you to go procure my bird from back in Russia. Here's my address. Instead, he says, I want my bird. He, he breaks everything down so that Hammer automatically thinks that he's just another thug or another... A criminal that he can control. And Hammer, of course, buys into it because Hammer's a moron. 
It's worth noting that in later MCU works, sorry for going off topic here for a second, uh, Hammer Industries keeps going and provides actual better weapons, really good competent weapons, including an improved version of the ex-wife, which makes you wonder if Hammer himself was the only thing keeping the company back, which is kind of sad. But anyways, <clears throat> so... Um, I'm just glancing at my notes here. There's the whole, you know, the car scene, the F1 scene. Venko goes to kill him. It's actually the first thing he tries to do. He, he disables his car, and then he goes for the killing blow. So it's like, bzz, bzz. obviously death was his original plan. It is just then that once that plan failed, he believes that he has now ruined Stark because, ha, 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 evil. Um, and, then, and, then, and then he gets rammed by a car, a Rolls Royce, like four times. Speaking of which... This is a weird thing to comment on, but you know how I can tell you, like, with one definitive point, how much more money was behind this film than the previous two, uh, Incredible Hulk and Iron Man 1? They ended up building multiple, basically custom Rolls Royces, specifically for this one scene, and two of them were destroyed in the process of filming. Think about that for a second. Rolls Royces are not cheap. Anywho... <clears throat> So, Senator Evil, he's pushing for this, to take control of this. I actually find myself wondering if Hydra was behind any of this. Behind Vanko, specifically. You ever wonder that? He does, he does seem to be pushed right into the position they need him to be in. Uh, and then Stark tries to tell Potts and Fails. I already mentioned that. I don't really have anything to say about that. Wow. Um... I don't have a lot to say about the next, like, 20 minutes of film. A lot of just stuff happens, and I don't really have anything to share about it. I do like the scene between Rhodey and Stark. Stark's sitting there in the car, and Rhodey's like, Dude, what the hell? I need to get this. Blah, 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 blah. And then he sees that Stark is legitimately having trouble. And then his entire attitude and perspective changes immediately. It's nice to see that kind of camaraderie and that kind of... variance... You know, obviously, in everyday matters, he's irritable and, and frustrated because of all the crap he's having to deal with. But when it comes to his friend literally having trouble to walk, he's there for him like that. Which, again, was true in the first film as well. It's something I like about him. Um, here's where I talk about Widow's manipulation methods. God, I kind of drunk ahead here. So he puts, on, he puts on the suit while drunk. Am I the only person who found that to be the most deadly and dangerous scene in the entire film? I mean that seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bunch of bots attacking. Big old whiplash mech. Uh-huh. A drunk man in the Iron Man suit. That's terrifying. <laughs> Do you know how easy it would be for that to go really, really badly? It's like the beginning of a horror movie right there. Uh, oh, she's missing her torso. And I say that so casually. I want you to picture that for a moment, if you care to. I want you to picture the, the ribs showing. I want you to picture the horrified scream as it takes her a few seconds to finally die as everyone around them starts to realize what's happening, that would be really, really bad, is what I'm trying to say. That scene just makes me flinch every time I say it. Now, obviously, I already talked about this. He pretty much arranges things so that his legacy of the suit can be taken over by Rhodey. Rhodey just gets in and hops in. Now, even when I saw this film for the first time, I'm like, oh, he let him. He totally let Rhodey take the suit. There is no way that isn't intended. And, of course, the film itself actually has Nick Fury sit down and say that to him. Which, again, guys, we're not that stupid. You don't have to tell us the plot, I swear. But what I want to know is, they did some subtle stuff where Rhodey is clearly less familiar with the suit. Not really sure how to move in it, especially when flying. And that was actually a good touch, because he shouldn't be that familiar with it. But at the same time, he was still very familiar with it, to the point where he knew how to use it, knew how to access the weapons, knew how to communicate in it, you know, to get all of the Air Force Base later. I honestly wonder, and they never show us this, so this is pure speculation, if Rhodey had been taking practice rounds in the suit on Stark's, you know, go, go, know-how or go-ahead or whatever, because he just kind of slid right into that one. So then Nick Fury shows up, donut scene, gotta have donuts, very important. Um, I don't actually have much to say about the, the, the revelatory scene where we find out that, oh my god, she is the Black Widow, holy crap. Um, <laughs> very surprising. Actually, if I'm being 100% honest, I didn't see that coming in the day when I first saw this film, so credit to them. Samuel L. Jackson is perfect as Nick Fury. 
And this is where I want to talk about Nick Fury for a bit. Now, first of all, Samuel L. Jackson is Nick Fury, and he adds a wonderful nuance to the role because he knows how to be hard, he knows how to be soft, he knows how to be real, and he knows how to snark. He also knows how to not give a crap and how to push people so that they come back in the right way. He is actually incredibly manipulative, but he does so in a much more obvious way than, say, what Widow does. He's the kind of person who will push you so that you'll push back so that whatever it is he wants is accomplished by your pushback, basically. I know that's a terrible analogy, but bear with me. I also really like the way that he handles Stark. I mentioned before that different people deal with Stark in different ways. That was back in the first film. Fury is probably the only person that I can think of off the top of my head who can actually make Tony Stark go off balance, who can really push him off his balance. And he does it flawlessly. It's actually, again, it's very overt. He's the exact opposite of the subtlety of Widow. He's just, by the way, bulldozer. My favorite example of this is when they're sitting and talking. He's like, yeah, no. I know your dad better than you did. He helped found S.H.I.E.L.D. And, uh, yeah, I really loved you as a kid and blah, blah. Anyways, I got to get going. Here's your stuff. If you need anything, I got my eye on you. Bye. And Stark's just like, what? What? <laughs> You also get a really strong feeling of competency from S.H.I.E.L.D. in this film. And I like that because, to be blunt, I never felt that in the first film. It's one, of the, it's one of the things I kept kind of commenting on in Iron Man 1 is, this is the best S.H.I.E.L.D. can do. In this film, it feels like S.H.I.E.L.D. is basically on top of everything all the time. And I kind of like that perspective, especially given later films. So, let's see here. I'm looking at my, just looking at my notes here. Um... So Rhodey has to turn this over to Hammer Industries, which he is not in favor of, and he has to turn over the suit for immediate presentation to push this up into the public to make PR points, which he's not in favor of. And both of those are obvious why. Uh, First of all, he wants an actual competent weapons manufacturer, and frankly, Hammer Industries, it is not. Second of all, there's the fact that this is something brand new that needs to be tested and worked through to the earth degree, yeah, it's past the nth degree. We're up to the nth degree now. In order to really know what they're doing and how they're doing it and figure out how to replicate it and blah, 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 blah. And he actually gets irritated when it comes down. Now, this is an order. You need to be ready for the expo. What? Really? Okay, sure. And I mention that because this is part of what little character arc Rhodey has in these, in these last two films. It's him starting to realize that despite his philosophical leanings and his military ideals there is a disadvantage to working in the team, so to speak. Um, That when you're part of a, let's just call it what it is, when you're part of a democratic organization, you have to make sure that they're happy and they're happy and they're happy and they're happy. And that doesn't always mean you get to be happy, too. I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. This is no political commentary. It's just truth. The very nature of working in a group is the very nature of compromise. And he's starting to see that. It's, all, it's a question then of a case-by-case basis of whether this is acceptable compromise or whether this is something that is unacceptable and needs to be changed. Which brings me to the weapons presentation by Hammer. First of all, love Sam Rockwell. I already said that, but he, he does a, such a good job with this role. Um, the way he lays this all out like a used car salesman is awesome, and he just kind of rolls through it. Here's a submachine gun, you know, SMG there. We got a shotgun, but you're not hunting. Okay, we got a grenade launcher. That's for hippies. We got a chain gun. You're still, still nothing? Okay, okay. Let me bring out the big gun. And I love it because the 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 major, who I forget his, his name, he was actually in the first film as well, and Rhodey are just there blank-faced. Pure poker face. Uh-huh. And then finally he brings out the ex-wife, oversells the crap out of it. Um, and then finally Rhodey's like, okay, I'll take it. You'll take what? All of it. And I kind of like that. First of all, I like the whole presentation. It's just, it's just good stuff. But it really shows Rhodey's mentality and, and the, the variance between uh, War Machine and Iron Man. Iron Man is all about... I, tell, I mentioned this in the first film, too. I mean, if he just wanted a big, super-doomed suit, he would just use the one that Obadiah Stane was using. But no, he wants the sleek, professional, um, skilled one that isn't as strong and doesn't have as much firepower, but it can do more things. It is, to use a simple gaming term, it is more utility than it is DPS. By contrast, Rhodey wants more guns. And I'm not... I'm totally okay with that. That makes sense. Because in addition to distinguishing them, it kind of showcases the difference. 
how the two of them think. Then we see O'Reilly on the TV. No Fox jokes, please. I just it just made me laugh to see that he did the cameo for that. Don't think I ever caught that before. So Stark fails miserably at trying to explain himself to Pepper. Granted, she doesn't give him a chance. And then he's he he talks to you know Agent Romanov. It's like Natalie, huh? Natalie was it? Yeah. And then he actually says, "Was any of it true? You were you were really called triple agent. Do you actually know Latin?" And she says. And I hope my translation of this is accurate, because I had to double-check this, because her word choice is weird. The appearance of things are deceptive, is I'm pretty sure what she says. And I like it that she says that, because then, of course, he's like, what's that mean? And she responds, it means, uh, get out or I'm going to have to have you taken out. Which brings me to a question. I've actually debated this in person with friends before. Do you think... Agent Romanov, the real person somewhere in that professional bubble of death, is actually legitimately discouraged or, um, I should say, disappointed in Stark? Or do you think that that is just more of an act to push him into a different direction? More of her standard, I am portraying myself in a certain way to manipulate you into a certain way thing. I'd honestly love to hear your guys' thoughts. I've, as I said, I've discussed this in person many times. I'm still not 100% sure of my own thoughts on the matter. So any thoughts from you guys are more than welcome. So um, uh, so then it makes a new element. There's some issues with that scene. I'm just going to say that. I'm, I'm just going to move on. And then Coulson shows up. It's such a brief scene, but he's really good in it. I've noticed that before about Coulson, about the guy who plays Coulson. He's just... Hey, and they actually shake hands. He says, we need you. And then Stark says, more than you know. And then Coulson, without missing a beat, not that much. <laughs> it's a nice little thing. And it shows how both of them have at least some kind of professional respect for each other and understanding. And that'll be important in the future as well. And then, of course, Coulson heads off to New Mexico. We'll be covering that one next week. I'll talk about that in a second, too, because that's the, the kicker. So... And then there's this scene, and it's in this scene that I start... It's actually two scenes, but it's, it's then this that I realized that Hammer is a complete Krennic. If you don't know what a Krennic is, it's another one of my Loriams, one of my character archetypes. Uh, to summarize it in very, very brief, it's someone who is small, but thinks they are big. And I don't mean physically, I mean like a little fish, big pond kind of a situation. Except they think they're big, and I don't mean they're self-deluding. I mean they legitimately think they're a big fish. Hammer is the exact opposite in this of what Stain was back in one. You remember how Stain just completely curb-stomped the, uh, the Ten Rings terrorist organization and was completely on top of it? That's a big fish. Hammer goes in and tries to be this to Venko and fails miserably. And then he leaves the two guys who are dead the next time we see them because they're pathetic compared to him, the actual big fish. But... His desire to be better, to, to show him as better, to show the world what he already knows, that he is better than Tony Stark. Well, okay, let me actually rewind a second, because I want to ask you a question. Do you think he is a Krennic? <laughs> In other words, let me, let me phrase this better. Do you think he legitimately believes he's better? Or do you think he legitimately believes he's worse, and that he is, you know, uh, self-loathing and trying to overcompensate for that self-loathing? Because I could see an argument for either way. Because the next scene we see is him dancing on stage and, be, and being a prat and basically trying to emulate the same general thing Stark did back at the beginning of the movie and failing miserably at it. Just being a, a dorky idiot up on stage. Although, again, credit to Sam Rockwell for not making it legitimately awkward. And he gives his lines and he gives his presentation. He's just, he just doesn't have the same oomph to him. This is so wonderfully contrasted when Tony Stark shows up and and the way he does it, I want you to pay attention to it, because it's very carefully choreographed. He flies in like this, and he comes up, and then he lands, and he does the superhero landing, where he's down on one knee and one fist, and slowly rises. It is very carefully presented in such a way that shows the kind of natural charisma the character has. The same thing that's, that Hammer lacks. And of course, the audience erupts into applause from that one simple motion ignoring that the audience was nowhere near as enthusiastic for Hammer's entire presentation. Anyways, so... <clears throat> so Hammer sucks. <laughs> and, uh... 
Wow, I don't have much to say about the battle at all, do I? It is nice to see that uh, Widow isn't just a manipulator. I mean, she's great at that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it was nice to see her basically curb-stomp her way through the guards, showing that at least on the same tier of, of relative power level, she is much better, much more skilled, and much more capable of using what she has than most other people. So she is established as not just a spy, but effectively a super spy. And then, of course... Uh, Hogan's back there. Yeah, this big protracted fight with this guy. It's funny, he actually fights him like a boxer, too, if you watch him. A, a, a boxer fighting dirty, but a boxer nonetheless. Um, Pepper, well, this is actually funny. This struck me as weird at the time, but looking back, it makes perfect sense, because Pops just kind of takes control of the situation at the at the expo. She just, she calls in the cops, the cops defer to her, she pushes this person aside, says, you work on this, you work on this, you get this over here. She just naturally and, and cleanly takes control, which makes it even more jarring that she then resigns as CEO because she's so good at it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's another reason that kind of irked me. Um, then the ex-wife goes off, plink. And while that scene is funny, the ex-wife just plinking off of Vanko's armor, it's funnier if you think of that ex-wife, don't, don't take that, if you think of the missile that he shot as Justin Hammer, or whatever his freaking name, I can't remember, I stuttered there because I couldn't remember his first name, as Hammer, as the guy Sam Rockwell's playing. Big, showy thing, lots of, lots of speech, lots of sales presentation, plink, fizzle, and that's it. So whether he thinks he's a big fish, or is self-deluded, um, he is definitely a small fish. So the battle was cool. I actually, literally my only note here for the entire battle sequence is the battle was cool. I don't have much to add to it. It was good stuff. I do have to comment, of course, on Peter Parker. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I don't know if I like the idea that's Peter Parker. I mean, I, let me say that. I love the idea that that's Peter Parker. There's just a nice symmetry and connection point there. It's just a little thing. It doesn't matter. Um, I know that the, that, that in, introduces a continuity snarl. I, I know that that timeline doesn't line up. It's just a neat thing to think about. But what I really want to talk about during the battle is how they, is how Rhodey and, and Stark were basically awesome together. Great natural chemistry, great kind of banter. And, and even as they're like discussing the tactics of this, like, okay, the heavy goes over there. No, I'm the heavy. No, you have guns. You're not the heavy. Personally... In my own classification of categories of powers across fiction, I would actually call War Machine a heavy. You know, heavy is the big guy who's got the big guns, or the big weapons, or the big power, or the big staying power. The heavy is the one who does the heavy lifting, which is why I call it that. Um, Stark is far more the, I'm going to make sure everything goes just the right way. You know, uh, crowd control, maneuverability, utility, um, uh, dodging, literally the ability to outmaneuver the drones, that was excellent. War Machine is the guy who, once you once the, the tank or the utility or whatever has dragged the enemy into the kill zone, he's the one who kills them. But then, of course, Stark is the one who has to do... So, whatever. Um, I guess I don't have much else to share about this. I did enjoy the film, like I said. It's interesting, the whole... <laughs> the finale where it's like, um, you know, we want you on board as a consultant for the Avengers Initiative. Now that's interesting to me, because if you take a, if you zoom the camera out for a second, that's exactly what Rhodey wanted right at the beginning of the film. I wanted to be folded into the pre-existing chain of command. Now Rhodey, of course, meant the United States military. I believe Air Force specifically. Please don't quote me on that, but I believe Rhodey is an Air Force colonel. Um, but he is folded into the chain of command as part of Shield, which naturally, admittedly, kind of fits a little bit better, doesn't it? Now, um, <laughs> the, uh, the other thing I like, of course, is Senator Evil has to give a glowing, yes, thank you for all that you've done, poke. <laughs> that would have been interesting if he had put some poison on that metal, wouldn't it? He could have gotten away with it. Oh, my God. Well, maybe he couldn't. I don't know. And then we have the teaser. Now, I wanted to say one final thing about this, because this was my second MCU movie. Uh, I actually... Well, actually, no, I guess it was my third, because I saw Incredible Hulk in the films, but or in the theaters. But my point was, the pattern hadn't really been established yet. I know that sounds weird. It was only ten years ago. But I'm sure most of you remember when staying for the credits was unheard of. 
me and my friend Gary used to have a policy of as soon as the film started to wrap up, we'd get up out of our seats and go down to the hall and then sit there and watch the rest of it, or stand there and watch the rest of it, and then when the credits start rolling, that's when we'd leave ahead of the crowd. Because the credits roll means the film is over and you leave. It's not until, you know, the, until Iron Man 1 and Incredible Hulk both did this that this new pattern started emerging, and now all sorts of films are doing the mid-credits and the post-credits concept. So what I'm trying to say is, I didn't stick around at the end of Iron Man 2. I just left. I didn't even find out about the Mjolnir thing until much later. Now, I do want to talk about the Mjolnir thing and the Thor thing, but if I'm being honest, I think that belongs more in the next video, where we'll talk about Thor. So, I hope you've enjoyed my discussions on Iron Man 2, a film I enjoyed. <laughs> and I'll see you guys next time.